0: Hello, and welcome to I Know Dino, the The big Big dinosaur Dinosaur podcast, Podcast. where we cover news, interviews, and discussions of all things dinosaur.
1: Hello, and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And in today's episode, we have an interview with Ariel Marcy, creator of the paleontology game Go Extinct, as well as some upcoming games, which sound really awesome.
0: We enjoyed playing Go Extinct, so...
1: Yeah, that's a fun one. We also have dinosaur of the day Majungasaurus, which is Ariel's favorite dinosaur from Go Extinct, coincidentally. Oh, it all works out. (laughs) Yeah. We have a ton of dinosaur news. And as always, we would like to thank some of our Stegosaurus patrons who help us keep the podcast going, specifically Lucas and Eli, Wyatt, the Georges family, and we have a new patron, John Heck. So thank you guys so much for joining our group. And we have reached our $200 a month goal for Patreon. Yeah, big news. So everybody who's a current patron is going to get a free sticker. And we have some extra stickers because we didn't expect people to be as generous as they were. And we reached the $200 mark with only 40 patrons. So if you join within the next week, by April 18th, we'll send you a sticker too. Because we have a bunch of extras.
0: (laughs) We also want to announce that Taylor McCoy, who you may remember, he writes for us occasionally, and we interviewed him back in one of our early episodes. He has started a new occasional series for us called Tyrannosaurus Specimens. So if you want to learn about specific T-Rex specimens, then you should check out. We have the first one on our website now at inodino.com, and we'll be posting more. Yeah. Yeah. We also have our Top 10 Dinosaurs of 2016 ebook giveaway from now until April 16th. And thank you so much for those who have already entered to win. I saw when we checked this morning, it was over 200 entrants. So that's amazing.
1: And if you're interested in joining the giveaway, just head to the link in our show notes and it'll just have a little thing that you tweeted us and that'll automatically enter you. First in the news, we have an article that was published in Nature, and thanks to Luke for being the first to share this with us on Patreon. So there's a new dinosaur from the Two Medicine Formation, and we briefly talked about it with Dave Trexler and Corey Coverdell from the Two Medicine Dinosaur Center last summer when we were visiting and we did our dig. And back then it was just known as Displetosaurus something, (laughs) you know, unknown (laughs) species, And Dyspletosaurus is in the Tyrannosauridae family, but it is not a Tyrannosaurus, so there have been a lot of news articles about this, and I'll talk a little bit more about that. But anyway, it's named after Jack Horner, Dyspletosaurus Horneri. And it lived in the late Cretaceous about 75 million years ago, and it was about 9 meters or 30 feet long and about 2.2 meters or 7.2 feet tall, which puts it roughly three quarters the size of a T-Rex, maybe a little bit smaller, but still a pretty sizable carnivore.
0: Yep. Something you would not want to get in the way of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: they found a partial arm, a nearly complete leg, and a complete skull. And about the skull, they said, quote, The texture of the facial bones of the new taxon and other derived tyrannosauroids indicates a scaly integument with high tactile sensitivity, end quote. And basically what the authors are saying there is that they're assuming that the small holes around the mouth are for nerves and blood vessels to make them more sensitive. So, We talked a little bit about that with Spinosaurus and how they might have been able to detect water vibrations and use that, you know, kind of put their snout underwater and feel when a fish is coming and then chop it without necessarily having to see it first. And it's based on the assumption that they have this in common with modern crocodilians that have kind of a similar potential scale pattern and similar nerves around their mouths. And the thing that got everybody stirred up in the media, it seems like, is something they put near the end of the paper where they said, quote, as in crocodilians, female tyrannosaurids would have relied upon ISOs, which is what they're calling those nerves that kind of help them feel extra sensitivity around their mouth, and would have aided adult tyrannosaurids in harmlessly picking up eggs and nestlings, and in courtship, Tyrannosaurids might have rubbed their sensitive faces together as a vital part of pre-copulatory play, end quote. Meh. And that last piece is the thing that most people latched on to.
0: Even though it just says might have.
1: <laughs> yes, it's very speculative. And so there are lots of clickbaity headlines like, Tyrannosaurus Rex was a sensitive lover, new dinosaur discovery <laughs> suggests. Or... <laughs> But like I said, it's not even about Tyrannosaurus rex. And then also, scientists discover new species of crocodile-like dinosaur. Sort of, I guess. It's not really crocodile-like any more than any other dinosaur. But yeah. So it's an interesting interpretation of the holes around the t-rex's face and there's a couple other details about smooth versus rough patches and most of that boils down to whether or not there were scales there so interestingly it's probably a solid point scored by the crocodile lipped argument you know rather than we talked about some of the other options like big jowly lips or you know the tight lizard lips This is more like the crocodile where the teeth are poking out around it. And they say that because it appears that there's evidence for scales getting too close to the opening of the mouth so there wouldn't have been room for lips. At least that's their hypothesis. I also like the Tinder-inspired Washington Post dinosaur dating profiles. (laughs) They had a picture of a T-Rex and they said, quote, Like snout rubbing and raw Edmontosaurus steak dinners, Mm. dislikes Triceratops and asteroids. (laughs) It's pretty clever. And I just want to reiterate because I think it's an important point. This really doesn't say anything definitively about T Rex because, as the authors point out, Displetosaurus taurusus likely evolved directly into Displetosaurus Horni. They're very similar and they seem to be sequential in time. But T Rex likely arrived from an Asian lineage later. And we do generally infer a lot between groups. So, since they're both in Tyrannosauridae and fossils are really rare. You tend to make a lot of inferences like how we say T-Rex probably had feathers, even though we've never found feathers near a T-Rex. We have seen euteranus with feathers all over them, and they're close enough related that we figure, okay, there are probably some feathers on T-Rex. So the same kind of logic is applying to say that T-Rex might have had these similar scaly lips that were extra sensitive and things like that. But it is really hypothetical. Even the idea that this specific Dyspletosaurus had this extra sensitivity in the lips is a little bit speculative. But it's really interesting. It's cool to see when they can draw out these other inferences from fossils, like what kind of lips the dinosaur might have had. I really like that.
0: So that's interesting then. Does that mean we know for sure they had lips? Because that was speculative before, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, we know, I guess by like a By one definition, you'd say everything kind of has lips because that's just like the closest thing to the teeth. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But then the question is, you know, how big the lips are, what they're made out of, if they're scales, if they're, you know, jowly or whatever. Yeah, this is one more piece of evidence towards them not having big lips and having more like simple like crocodile lips. Cool. There's still a lot of room for extra information here.
0: (laughs) There always is.
1: Yeah. And next up, we have a maybe new dinosaur from southern China that was published in IVPP. And it's named Shuangbysaurus anlongbaoensis. And the genus is named after the county it was found in. And the species name comes from the city of Anlongbao, which means dragon placing fort. That's a good name. Kind of an interesting coincidence. It's in the Yunnan province, which is northwest of Vietnam. And it's from the early Jurassic. They found a partial skull, including crests, and a partial lower jaw. And it looks kind of similar to Telophosaurus. But it might be too similar to Sinosaurus Triassicus. So there's already a few people saying that it should be considered a synonym. So it might already be a junior synonym and disappearing from the literature.
0: Ah, but the species name.
1: Yeah. It's pretty cool. Triassicus is a pretty good species name, too, though.
0: Yeah, but dragon policing fort. I don't know. (laughs) It's hard to beat.
1: That's true. And we've also got another dinosaur discovery from Brazil. This one was published in Cretaceous Research, and it's a juvenile titanosaur. It was found north of Sao Paulo, and it's unnamed, but probably a lithostradian, which is a type of titanosaur that basically makes up most of the titanosaurs from the late cretaceous and the remains were very fragmentary which is why it wasn't named like we talked about i think last week so they had some partial vertebrae and some pieces of hips but the neat thing about it is that the bones are already pneumatic meaning that there's some space in them for air sacs And we've been thinking for a while that young titanosaurs looked a lot like adult titanosaurs and they just kind of got bigger over time but had similar proportions. And this is more evidence for that. The other cool thing is that there might be more to find there because previously other titanosaurs and titanosaur eggs have been found in the area. So it might be a new little hotbed for titanosaur discoveries.
0: Cool. A titanosaur fort, if you will. (laughs) I guess so.
1: (laughs) Do you want one of them named after like titanosaur fort?
0: I just really like <laughs> <Aunt> ends this <Longbowensis> name.
1: <laughs> the idea of a whole bunch of dinosaurs in a fort. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of cool.
0: Next, the Museum für Naturkund in Berlin had a live session on March 31st where visitors could see samples being taken from Tristan the T-Rex. They were looking for uh, small parts of enamel in the lower jaw specifically. There was an hour-long press conference with scientists on hand to answer questions, including Dr. Anne Schulp, paleontologist, Dr. Renee Jensen, an isotope geochemistry specialist, and Dr. Daniela Schwartz, a sauropod specialist. So tooth enamel is used to, quote, study stable isotopes of certain chemical elements. And it can be used to compare to modern animals to figure out similarities in diet. And it also helps scientists figure out possible migrations and access to different food and water sources. So there's questions around this, like, did Tristan the T-Rex eat more than just meat? Did this T-Rex swallow bones? Things like that. And it's pretty amazing to think that you can answer these big questions with just these small particles.
1: Interesting. So they were just sampling it. They haven't actually released any results yet?
0: No, but if you were visiting the museum at the time, you could see them doing the sampling. Cool.
1: Next up is a new paper published in *A and it's about Murus Raptor, which was discovered back in 2016, that we talked about quite a bit.
0: <laughs> it's a funny name.
1: Yeah, it's in preprint, so it's not all officially published yet. But as a reminder, Murus Raptor was a juvenile that was found at the base of a cliff. And the name refers to like a wall because it took them a really long time to excavate it because it was in a wall, basically. In Argentina.
0: And it's a mega raptor's theropod.
1: Yes. And it's about six and a half meters long or 21 feet. And it was around about 90 million years ago in the late Cretaceous. And aside from just the scattered remains like ribs and vertebrae and all that good stuff, they found tooth marks on some of the bones as well as a complete brain case. So the new paper is all about that brain case and CT scans that they just did of it. And as Sabrina said, Raptor is a Megaraptorid, and Megaraptorids are a group of pretty large theropods. It's got Mega right in the name, so that shouldn't be too surprising. (laughs) And this new research showed that Megaraptorids differ from Allosaurids and Ceratosaurs, at least in their brain morphology but they're somewhat similar to tyrannosaurs and they say quote the reptile encephalization quotient of murus raptor is within a range between those of allosaurus and tyrannosaurus end quote and that's the first time i've seen someone refer to a reptile encephalization quotient but we've talked about the regular encephalization quotient before, and that's basically the size of a brain of an animal relative to the expected size of the brain in that animal. And the bigger your brain is, implies that you're smarter, effectively. So humans have a really high encephalization quotient, but you know something like a fish has a really low encephalization quotient. And typically, non-avian reptiles have a lower encephalization quotient than avian reptiles and t-rex is one of those that was starting to get a bigger brain so this guy is getting into that kind of realm with a larger brain and they also found that the olfactory ratio of murus raptor is a little bit smaller than tyrannosaurus and allosaurids so maybe it couldn't smell quite as well so murus raptor Almost as smart as T-Rex, potentially. Couldn't smell quite as well. That's basically the bottom line.
0: <laughs> so you'd be a little bit safer around murus Raptor compared to T-Rex.
1: I don't know. Because <laughs> it's, it's closer to our size, so it might be more interested in eating you. Mm. I don't know. T-Rex might be going for the bigger, bigger guys. Could be. It's hard to say. <laughs> but, yeah, it's it's always hard to tell just by, like, size of brains, you know, how smart something is. It's not the best indicator. But it's pretty much all we can do with paleontology. So you got to use what you have.
0: Yep. So next up, Geology India posted a YouTube video and an accompanying blog post about dinosaurs that have been found in India. So if you're curious, you should check it out because there's a quick history of dinosaurs and how Pangaea split into Laurasia and Gondwana. And then there's a list of about 25 dinosaurs found in India and descriptions of each. They include Barapasaurus, a basal sauropod, Dondacosaurus, a theropod, Rajasaurus, an abelisaur, Janosaurus, a titanosaur, titanosaurus, and more. We'll post a link and then you can read about these for yourself.
1: Yeah, India is kind of interesting since it kind of floated off from Africa up to Asia. Mm -hmm. I think in the late Cretaceous, right?
0: You have to read that blog post. (laughs)
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) Or watch that video. Next, the last week of March was hashtag Utahraptor week. And to celebrate, Scott Harmon posted a new Utahraptor skeletal on his website, skeletaldrawing.com. He had created it back in 2012 after he got to see some unpublished material, but wasn't allowed to share it until now. So according to Scott, Utahraptor was robust and stocky and had a reduced tail length from previous drawings and a short torso, as well as tall neural spines that probably helped support its back muscles. And if you want more information, then you should see the Utah Raptor Project, which is that project Jim Kirkland and others are working on to properly analyze this nine-ton block full of Utah Raptors. (laughs) Yep. If you're looking for... A dinosaur documentary. There's a new one coming out called The Day the Dinosaurs Died, which is a working title. So Barcroft Productions is producing it for BBC in association with six other companies. And the documentary will be distributed in the UK, North America, France, Australia, and Germany. The premise of the documentary is to, quote, uncover the story of one of the most dramatic days in the planet's history, Unquote. quote. Which, yeah, that's definitely true. That would have been a dramatic day. Yeah. <laughs> So Barcroft had access to the recent Chicxulub Crater Expedition, and based on this short description, it sounds like it should be good. I'm looking forward to hearing more details.
1: Yeah, definitely. I'd like to see some of the behind the scenes on them drilling way down into that Chicxulub Crater. It could be really fun.
0: And I know we tend not to talk about politics, but this news item involves dinosaurs, and it's not really controversial. At least, I don't think so. (laughs) There's a new study that found that liberals and conservatives in the U.S. both have an interest in dinosaurs and seemingly have nothing else in common.
1: (laughs) At least in terms of scientific appreciation, right?
0: Yeah, the scientific interest. Yeah. So, I mean, how could we not talk about this one, then? (laughs) Uh, The study was published in Nature Human Behavior, and it was conducted by Feng Shi, Yongren Shi, Fedor Dokshin. James Evans, and Michael Macy. And so this team looked at millions of online book purchases that people purchased from Amazon and Barnes and Noble, and then they categorized people as liberal or conservative based on the political books they bought. And then they looked at the science books that they bought, and they found that there wasn't much overlap in interest for the science topics except in dinosaurs. (laughs) So... The authors are now calling on teachers and scientists to step up and get more people interested in science. And Macy said, quote, first and foremost, we need to get people excited about science for science's sake. The second thing is for the sciences to encourage the appreciation of the critical perspective that scientists use, end quote.
1: Yeah, dinosaurs are amazing, and everyone loves them. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I think they are a really good like gateway to science because so many people get interested in dinosaurs at a really young age. Mm-hmm. Before you know anything about the scientific method or any of these theories, but you know, you can really get into evolution and some other topics pretty easily from looking at dinosaurs. So maybe we can use that as a bridge to kind of bring the... Country back to sanity would be nice. <laughs> Less infighting would be good.
0: Yeah. Next, we've already covered this, but this is an update. California is one step closer to having an official state dinosaur. Like there was talk about it, but now Assemblyman Richard Bloom has introduced a bill to make augustinolophus morrisi the official dinosaur. And as a recap, that's a hadrosaur that lived in the Cretaceous in California, and we'll be following this story for even more updates. There's a new traveling exhibit in North America called Tyrannosaurs Meet the Family. That's a great name. And it's on exhibit at the Waterloo Region Museum near Toronto, Canada. This exhibit was created by the Australian Museum, and it has a mix of casts and interactive stuff, including a touch table where you match up tyrannosaurs on the tyrannosaur family tree. And (laughs) apparently, if you make too many mistakes, your tyrannosaur blows up into tiny stakes. And when you finish the tree, a meteor shower destroys your work.
1: So <laughs> so I'm guessing this touch table is some kind of, like, giant touchscreen thing?
0: I think so. It's hard to tell without being there. Yeah. But um, skeletons you can see in the exhibit include Displetosaurus, Scotty the Tyrannosaurus, which is one of the most complete and heavy Tyrannosaurus skeletons, Adilong, and Guanlong. And the exhibit is open until April 30th at the Waterloo Region Museum. And they also have a free Tyrannosaur egg hatching app hm. where you can hatch eggs to collect Tyrannosaurs. That sounds kind of fun. I might have to download that app.
1: It's like a Tamagotchi, but with Tyrannosaurs. Do you get to feed it?
0: I don't know. They made it sound similar to Pokemon.
1: Oh, okay. So it's more of a collecting kind yeah. of thing. Interesting.
0: And then maybe they grow. I don't really know. Hm. I haven't tried it yet. Sounds kind of fun. Yeah. Next, there was a happy ending for a brewery in Denver. So a while ago, somebody stole a dinosaur planter from our mutual friend Brewery in Denver, Colorado. And the people who work there figured out who stole it from them. So first they saw in video footage that it was a woman, and then they found her husband's name from their credit card records. The next step was that they posted about it on Instagram. And then, quote, through very light internet stalking... (laughs) They said they figured out the couple was in Denver for their first wedding anniversary and the brewery sent them an email and the couple sent back the dinosaur and apologized along with a Home Depot gift card to replace the plant that was inside it. (laughs) The neck apparently was a little broken but has since been fixed and the brewery has also deleted the Instagram post because some people were calling them and getting pretty vicious and aggressive toward the couple who stole the dinosaur planter. (laughs) And the brewery also said they didn't take it too seriously and they just shared that video so that people know that they pay attention when their customers steal i'm not too convinced they didn't take it seriously though considering how they tracked their dinosaur planter down <laughs>
1: well no one wants to lose a dinosaur planter well they don't but look-
0: that is a lot of effort to say and yeah, we don't take this seriously <laughs>
1: oh i when i heard they don't take it seriously what i was thinking is like they're not going to press charges
0: oh okay yeah yeah that i can see
1: stealing is bad though yeah. don't steal
0: <laughs> especially dinosaur things yeah <laughs>
1: And we have a quick follow-up to our Hearthstone dinosaur rumors that we were talking about. So the Journey to Ungoro has launched, which includes 135 new cards for this game called Hearthstone. And they have Long Neck and Ultrasaur. Those are in quotes, because <laughs> <laughs> obviously Ultrasaur is not a real thing. Sauropods, there's also a Stegodon and a Swamp King Dread, Tyranitus king mosh and devilosaur theropods there's also a raptor and dire horn hatchling and i guess dire horn is their word for ceratopsian <laughs> and then there are a couple upgrades that are kind of funny like flaming claws and dino size which turns like a little tiny thing into like a huge dinosaur sized animal nice and then there are a ton unless it's of- a
0: small dinosaur size
1: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Like a compie. (laughs) In this game, it's all large dinosaurs. There aren't any, like, micro-raptors or anything that I remember. And then there's a ton of non-dinosaur-related cards with things like phoenixes and various witchcraft and whatnot.
0: And I just want to reiterate here a quick review that Janice sent us of the Hearthstone dinosaur card pack. She says... I am enjoying playing Hearthstone again. It's really fun and the designs are pretty cool. I'm currently getting my butt kicked in a ranked battle while waiting for my best friend to come back online. (laughs) The amount of dinosaur medium products coming out is awesome.
1: It is. More (laughs) dinosaur games. Yep.
0: More dinosaur everything. Yep. And last, I just wanted to quickly mention the season two finale of Legends of Tomorrow because I know at least some of you out there watch that show because... We got some feedback last time we talked about it. (laughs) (laughs) Spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it yet, don't listen to this. But if you have, then maybe you were as excited as me to see it all end where they crash landed in L.A. in 2017 and they messed up something in time. So they were surrounded by a bunch of T-Rexes. Yeah. And so if that's how it ends, I expect season three to be full of dinosaurs.
1: It was pretty weird, though, because they were in L.A. and it was like L.A., you know, all the skyscrapers and freeways and everything. But then there are just a bunch of T-Rexes around. Yeah. So it's like in this world, did T-Rex stick around for 66 million years and people didn't hunt them at all? And they're just like coexisting? I don't know.
0: That's a good point. We'll have to learn the backstory in season yeah. three.
1: You couldn't see any people, I don't think, in that shot, other than the people getting out of the ship.
0: Yeah. But there so. were a lot of buildings.
1: Yeah, I don't. I don't know. Maybe the T. Rex
0: built the buildings. They were large buildings.
1: I guess, or they had that weird like Troodon man
0: mm. that people
1: have hypothesized about. Where like, since Troodon was really smart, it would have turned into like an anthropomorphic dude. Oh, and if, that if yeah, they created yeah, it's the buildings, just
0: dinosaurs. Yeah. Next, yeah, that would be good. <laughs> <laughs> That'd
1: be pretty interesting. <laughs> and before we get into our interview. We just want to give a reminder that our Top 10 Dinosaurs of 2016 ebook giveaway is still going until April 16th. And if you want to get our sticker, which is a sticker of our logo, and it's got like teeth that look all chompy, so we really like it. Uh, it's called
0: a die cut sticker. That's why very the teeth fancy. are sticking out. Yeah.
1: And you will get it for free if you join our Patreon community by April 18th.
0: So. What are you waiting for? Go to (laughs) patreon.com slash (laughs) InoDino.
1: Yep. And now on to our interview with Arielle Marcy. So we're joined this week by Arielle Marcy. She's a biologist, PhD student, tutor, and creator of the educational game Go Extinct through her startup Steam Galaxy. And that's how we met because Go Extinct features some dinosaurs and just kind of generally goes through paleontology. So how did you get... Into making educational games.
2: Well, I uh, I got started because I was both a researcher and a, a teacher. So, right a year after graduating, I was teaching undergraduate introductory science, and I was presented with sort of a conundrum where, in research settings, evolutionary trees were like Rosetta stones. They're so useful. They like they help us orient. Um, they help us understand but introducing them in the classroom was like total headache and kids or i say kids but students were really struggling to understand what they meant and so i was presented with this and said there has to be a better way to teach this and games were at the forefront of my mind so that's how i started thinking about okay how could i make an educational game that teaches players how to read evolutionary trees in a way that in a way that's fun and in a way that's engaging and in a way that allows for repetition in a way that linear formats like teaching and like reading mm-hmm. don't allow for. So I think what's really special about games is that they allow for that repetition for students to really get get the practice they need to understand what the tree is saying.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I really like how in the game you have little facts on all the cards <laughs> and things. I know if I was a kid, I'd probably be memorizing every little thing that's on these and you cram a lot of details in so it's really cool
2: one of the favorite facts that almost always gets brought up when playing with kids is that birds are dinosaurs and mm-hmm. i love responding to that with and aren't they delicious
1: <laughs> that's a good one yeah so yeah speaking of dinosaurs you have four dinosaurs in your let's see oh you have the literal name for that one terrible lizards Yep. aka dinosaurs category and Is one of those dinosaurs your favorite?
2: Oh, I I think I have a soft spot for the Majungasaurus. Because it's like not quite the (laughs) T-Rex, but it's closely related. And I just love the colors that the artists did for that. It's just like so rainbow, like hippie dinosaur, terrifying hippie dinosaur.
1: (laughs) How did you pick to include Majungasaurus? Because you've got Stegosaurus, Apatosaurus, Majungasaurus, and Chicken. And the Poosarus and Stegosaurus are super popular, but Majungasaurus seems kind of like uh, an interesting choice.
2: Yeah, well, I was trying to get a good um, sweep of the tree and like trying not to have too, too obvious gaps in like the major branches of the vertebrate evolutionary tree and you know it's a game so it can't do a full coverage. T.-rex was just a little bit too close to birds. That they're just mm. they're just so close. So the Majungasaurus was a way to introduce a less well-known dinosaur, so that the students that are like super excited about dinosaurs can be like, "Oh, what is this one?" And like, you know, <laughs> maybe they look at look look it up on their own um, later on. So that was that was my thought process.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's cool. I like that. I really like when lesser-known dinosaurs kind of get brought out because you see the same five or six dinosaurs over Mm -hmm. and over and over again. That's cool.
2: Yeah. What I liked about the dinosaurs is it allowed us to bring in a bit of color to the game. Like, (laughs) we have a lot of mammals in the game, and a lot of mammals are very brown. (laughs) So uh, with most of those dinosaurs being extinct, we got to have a bit of fun with with what the dinosaur colors were. And I think that's backed up by research, too. Yeah. The coloration was either aposematic or maybe for sexual selection. So, I feel good about that.
1: For sure. Especially like if you think about birds, there are so many of them that are all sorts of crazy colors and colors we can't even see. Right. You would expect dinosaurs to have some. So, it's really cool. I really like how you set it up like a giant cladogram because I forget that people don't all know about cladistics. So I was playing with my family mm-hmm. and they they know a fair amount about science, but they're looking at this tree and they're like, okay, we've got like tetrapods and we've got, you know, dinosaurs over here. We've got like this subset of mammals over here and like just working through it is such an awesome process. When you teach this to kids, is this usually like their first introduction to cladistics?
2: So usually teachers give them something like an introductory worksheet to kind of get them to orient around the tree. So, you know, that it's kind of like a literal tree with a trunk starting with tetrapods. And the trunk is what all of those animals have shared in common with the four limbs. But the majority of the learning is done during the playing of the game.
1: Cool. And I I probably should have said earlier, but for our listeners that haven't played this game, it's basically a giant cladogram and it's got lots of different branches with different animals and different groups in them. And then your goal is to collect sets so you can collect the dinosaurs, which is what I did, and I obsessed over it and lost the game pretty bad because <laughs> I just wanted to collect the dinosaurs. But,
2: that's awesome.
1: Yeah, I mean, so I felt like a winner even though technically I lost terribly. But
2: <laughs> you just had your own set of rules that you were playing by, which is yeah. Totally
1: whoever gets the dinosaurs wins. I almost got both sets because there's two sets of everything, but at the last second I didn't get all of them. But that's okay. <laughs> So yeah, it's a really awesome game. I really enjoy it. And it kind of features a go fish mechanism, which I should have realized because it's called go extinct. And yeah. I didn't even realize that that until I started playing it, I was like, Oh, it's like go fish. Oh, duh. I should have realized that a long time ago. Yeah. How did you end up doing that style of gameplay? Did you like consider any other types of game kind of formats?
2: It was sort of, it came to me rather quickly that the Go Fish-like mechanic would work really well. Mm -hmm. And I think what makes it work really well is like, it's like Go Fish, but it's so much more interesting because you have this additional strategy component of, yes, you can ask for the Majungasaurus, which Mm -hmm. very few people do because it's hard to say. (laughs) Um, Or you could ask for a more general category. So you could ask for any dinosaur. And that choice of like, do I go really specific or do I go more general? And if I'm going more general, how general am I going? Like, that's a really interesting choice. And games thrive on meaningful choice like that. Hmm. So it was a really powerful way to get players just thinking about cladistics as a way of showing how these specific animals are in general more or less related to each other. So you get, you get, just by playing the game that, you know, Majungasaurus and chicken are both dinosaurs, but you also understand that they are more closely related to each other than either of them are related to mammals. And that's a really powerful idea that I think the the go fish mechanic does really well.
1: Yeah, and I really like, I mean, being a dinosaur fan, um, (laughs) (laughs) that you have the archosaur category, Mm. because that's something that I end up explaining to people constantly, just based on, you know, how similar pteranodons are to, or I should say pterosaurs are to dinosaurs. And people often think that pterosaurs are dinosaurs. And you say like, no, there's archosaurs. And that includes lots of extinct reptiles, including pterosaurs and stuff like that. And this is such a cool way to quickly explain. You've got crocodiles and you've got you know, a pterodactyl over here and you have a chicken over here and you can see just how closely related they are. That's really awesome.
2: Yeah. I couldn't get the pliosaurus in there, but yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's the only one I noticed that too. I was like, (laughs) if we could get a few marine reptiles that we'd really have the whole, but it already took up like half of your (laughs) cladogram. So it'll probably be a little too much.
2: Yeah. Do you point to the, um, the icon for the dinosaurs with the femurs locked below the body as a way of explaining how dinosaurs are different from other archosaurs yeah
1: usually that's almost always how i explain it the sprawling position versus kind of the more upright walking mm-hmm. i think that's a great way and i like that that's your picture for him too because it it really shows the distinction and you you even include one of the uh the upright standing uh crocodillomorphs right. too <laughs> which i like
2: yeah the venetic stuch- the other one that people hesitate to say
1: yeah, I I just hesitated to say because it right <laughs> if it's not a dinosaur, a lot of these words are kind of intimidating.
2: Yeah, cool. Well, I'm just delighted to hear that because like that's what that's what I want to hear. Like when I first was designing this game, I, the students I had in mind were undergraduates, and so the ability to teach or the ability to engage kids much younger is, I think, shows the power of games to convey topics that at first seem hard to grapple with um, make it much more accessible
1: yeah how early like how young of kids have you gone with this game what's the youngest group
2: um the youngest i think like the youngest consistently played is um six-year-olds and i think that yeah i think that's kind of starting to get into territories of like reading literacy may or may not be quite there in like theory of mind like because of the go fish mechanic you really have to be able to like store a lot of information about Mm -hmm. what people likely have and so I I build the game as eight and up and I I think I feel pretty solid about most eight-year-olds would take to the game and have a good time
1: yeah I think at six I I don't know if I could read any of these words probably chicken (laughs) (laughs) yeah that might be it snake I might be able to handle.
2: (laughs) I think there's a lot more pointing, which, you know, a big, a big board game allows for. But yeah, a lot more parental help.
1: Yeah, it's a really good game, though. Thank you. So is, you've got other games also, I saw on your profile, you've got a game about Evo Devo.
2: Yeah. What's going on with that? So that's kind (laughs) of my next game, and it's been in progress for a, a long while, because Running a startup and doing a PhD, turns out, takes a lot of time. But what I want EvoDevo to do is, it's the logical progression from Go Extinct, where Go Extinct is like, how are all these diverse animals related? And the next logical question coming from that is, okay, if they are all so different, how do they become so different? And the answer is, it has to do with small tweaks to the embryonic development. Hmm. And that's basically the field of evolutionary development, so the study of how these small changes occur and how they lead to all the all this diversity even though so much is shared in common. So for for this game, it's another card game. It's definitely going to be aimed at kids a little bit older, so probably more 10 and up. Okay. Yeah, I'm struggling to describe it because I'm still sort of working <laughs> on it, but Gotcha. Yeah. Stay tuned for more. And I'll have more details on my website when I have a workable prototype.
1: Cool. Is it going to be, do you think it's going to be like making real creatures or is it going to be like you can make a chickenosaurus by turning off the right genes Uh, and inhibitors and things
2: i'm so glad (laughs) you asked that because actually it's all about making mythical creatures oh nice so you start with a mythical embryo that's a chimera so it has like maybe a marine reptile face and then mammal limbs and then Mm -hmm. some reptile limbs and then maybe another set of reptile limbs and then a mammal tail and what you're trying to do is you're trying to create say a pegasus Hmm. or maybe you're also trying to make a unicorn so like those are the adaptive landscape like those are the the shapes of animals that the environment is currently selecting for and you're using mutations to try to quickly change your embryo into these various mythical creatures and what i want the game to teach is that it's actually relatively easy to make a pegasus and then if a unicorn is up there all you have to do is lose a set of wings grow a horn hmm. and you've got a unicorn. So it's underscoring <laughs> that, that you can pivot from one type of animal to another uh, very quickly.
1: That's awesome. One of my favorite things when I was a kid were those little books where they had like three pictures of animals, or I should say Ugh. pictures of animals split into three pieces and you could flip the heads and the bodies and the back half and it would make the name like a portmanteau automatically out of the names of the animals. Uh, yeah. I used to play with that thing for so long. I love it. <laughs> also, good
2: use of the word portmanteau. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> they are awesome.
2: <laughs> yeah. I would love to include a booklet like that in the game, but I'm still kind of yeah. figuring out what's, what's feasible from, from the business side.
1: That, is, that sounds like a really cool game. Thank you. Is it related to your PhD work at all or what are you studying right now?
2: Um, so my PhD is on the evolution and diversification of Australian native rodents. Hmm. So it is a, a, it is slightly related in that I am very interested in the diversity of this, you know, like just one lineage of animals made it over about 5 million years ago, and they have diversified into a wide variety of phenotypes. And so that's that's very much related to Themes of evolutionary development, but it is not fantastical creatures. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I guess I would say that my lit review has been very helpful (laughs) in finding primary sources.
1: Cool. So with your knowledge of Evo Devo, most modern animals that people think of are tetrapods because we mostly think of mammals and things. And sometimes I look at pictures of dragons or like you mentioned Mm. a pegasus where they have the four legs and the wings Would it really be feasible to get to something like that with Evo Devo, starting with a tetrapod? Or would you have to start with something else and then try to get to like a winged, four-legged animal?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And that's the reason why the game gives you a chimeric embryo with six sets of limbs. Um, Mm. So it's not a tetrapod you're playing with. Because most of the mythical creatures that were exciting, like dragons and pegasus, they have six limbs. And I wanted Mm -hmm. to get across the idea that, you know, evo-devo is the field that tells us why pegasus are not going to evolve, but unicorns might. Mm. Because some changes are very, very difficult to make. In fact, are usually fatal if made in embryonic development, like adding another set of limbs. Just that is so fatal. Whereas horns happen all the time. So cool. Yeah
1: cool but also not that cool because i would really like to see a flying horse i know
2: cool but disappointing (laughs) yeah
1: makes me wonder how far back you'd have to go to end up with some sort of cool six-limbed animal Mm. i don't know
2: yeah i mean you have to go back to insects and crustaceans like those have those exciting numbers of limbs i guess
1: (laughs) the only thing i could think of was like cockroaches and yeah like you say crustaceans yeah some of them are pretty cool, though. They're just kind of gross because they have exoskeletons, and that's kind of <laughs> and, disturbing and to people.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, have you seen Life the movie yet?
1: Yes. Oh, the new movie. Yeah. No, I haven't seen that one. Oh, okay. I was thinking of the documentary that's like Planet Earth.
2: <laughs> oh no! I mean that—that's excellent, of course. Um, but there's a horror, basically a horror film out right now that takes place on the International Space Station, and they discover a new, new form of life that is carbon-based and also just completely terrifying
1: <laughs> does that have discrete limbs or is that more like the blob kind of it's thing? definitely
2: more kind of blob-esque yeah 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 because
1: then there was um oh what was that movie last year arrival that had the heptapods i think was that what it was they had like seven limbs that was pretty That's cool. unusual spoiler alert <laughs> <laughs> Cool. So is there anything else you're working on that you'd like to share other than, I mean, I guess Evo Devo and a PhD probably are pretty time consuming.
2: Yeah. I mean, the other game that I'm not currently working on, because I have to be a little bit (laughs) more careful with how many projects I have going concurrently, but the the project that I'm working on or that I would like to work on next is a scientific method game. So again, emphasizing the creativity and the sort of human part of science which is not i think conveyed well enough and i think it turns off a lot of students from from science in a way that doesn't benefit science um Mm -hmm. and so it's actually inspired by tarot cards Mm -hmm. and um, it's called endeavor and it features kind of human stories you know those kind of like I feel like paleontology is full of those sorts of stories of, yeah. you know, just stories from the field and inspiration taken from unusual places. And so really emphasizing that aspect. So I guess that's, that's the thing that I'm looking forward to next.
1: That sounds awesome. I really want to play that one too. Uh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so where should people go if they want to follow along with your progress on these games or where they can get Go Extinct.
2: Well, to get Go Extinct is an easier answer, it goes to steamgalaxy.com, and the first thing that pops up is a little window where you can buy the game, although I will also mention that for educators, I offer a free version, and if they hit the For Educator button, they can download that there. I feel very strongly that quality science education should be freely available to all. Yes. yes. (laughs) That's awesome. So there's a way to buy the commercial version of the game, and then educators can get printable copies, and also uh, next-generation science standards alignment, as well as Australian science standards alignment. If you want to follow along on the games, I'm not particularly good about updating it, but my website, aamrc.com, is where I've been keeping those. But if you're interested in playtesting them, I have sort of a, a Google Doc that I... We'll uh, blast when ready. So, if you want, you can send me an email um, at at gmail.com Awesome. Yeah.
1: Well, I might send you an email because I'm interested.
2: Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, I already have your email, so I'll just pop it in there.
1: <laughs> okay, sounds good. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much for joining. It was an awesome discussion, and I'm a huge fan of your game, and I think I'm going to like your new games even better. <laughs> so, keep up the great work, and good luck with the PhD. Have fun in Australia.
2: Thank you. It was (laughs) a a delight to chat with you. So thanks so much.
0: Thank you so much, Ariel. I couldn't be there for this interview, but I did really enjoy playing the game.
1: Yeah, it's fun. I'm also really excited about the new games coming out, maybe even more so than the game that we've already played. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds pretty awesome. I want to make some of my own Evo Devo guys and all that.
0: And now onto our dinosaur of the day, Majungasaurus, which was a request from Cole via Patreon, so thanks, Cole. It was an abelosaur that lived in the Cretaceous in what is now Madagascar, and the name means Majunga Dome. The type species, and only species, is Majungasaurus Crenatissimus. and the species name means most notched, and refers to all the serrations on its teeth. Must be a lot. For a while, it was called Majungatholus, and now that's considered to be a junior synonym. Charles Depere, a French paleontologist, described the first theropod fossils from Madagascar in 1896 based on two teeth, a claw, and some vertebrate that French scientists who were with the French military had found. These fossils were classified as Megalosaurus, which was a wastebasket taxon, so many things were classified as (laughs) Megalosaurus to begin with. And then it was named a new species, Megalosaurus crenatissimus. Later, Depere reassigned these fossils to Dryptosaurus. The fossils were found in 1895, and that's when these French scientists with the French military were on an expedition to secure the island from the British.
1: Good old French and British fighting back and forth all the time.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Over the next 100 years, French collectors found more fragments in the Mahajana province in Madagascar, and René Lavocat described theropod teeth in 1955, and those teeth matched the teeth that Depore had described earlier, but... Lavacut also described a strongly curved jawbone that was different from Megalosaurus and Dryptosaurus. So based on this dentary, Lavacut made a new genus and named it Majungasaurus. Majungasaurus is an older spelling of Mahajanga. Interesting. Mm-hmm. In 1979, Hans Dieter Seuss and Philip Taquet described a dome-shaped skull fragment as Majungotholus autopus, a pachycephalosaur, and the first one described in the Southern Hemisphere. In 1993, a team from the State University of New York at Stony Brook and the University of Antananarivo started the Mahajanga Basin Project, which were a number of expeditions to the Mahajanga province. On the first expedition, they found hundreds of theropod teeth that looked like Majungasaurus. Over the course of seven expeditions, they found tens of thousands of fossils, many which were new species. In 1996, scientists found a complete theropod skull which had a dome-shaped horn on the top, similar to the dome that Susan Taquette described as Majungatholus atopus. In 1998, Majungatholus was redescribed as an abelosaur instead of a pachycephalosaur.
1: Pretty big difference.
0: Yes. <laughs> Majungasaurus Crenatissimus was named before Majungatholus autopus, but scientists thought that what was described as Majungasaurus was too fragmentary to assign to the new species as this skull. Over the next 10 years, more skulls that were less complete were found, as well as partial juvenile and adult skeletons, and isolated bones and thousands of shed teeth. All of these together form a nearly complete skeleton, though most of the forelimbs, pelvis, and tip of the tail are not known. In 2007, all those bones were part of a monograph made up of seven scientific papers on all aspects of Majungasaurus, based on material found between 1993 and 2001. The dentary that Lavacot had found was reevaluated and found to be characteristic for the new species, so the name Majungasaurus replaced Majungatholus. David Krause from Stony Brook University and who was part of the Mahung- Mahajanga Basin Project decided to give back to the local community in Madagascar who helped him throughout the years on his expeditions. They told him they wanted education for their children and needed to hire a teacher, which cost $500 per year. And he and his team raised the money for the teacher's salary. And in 1998, Kraus founded the Madagascar and Kinsey Fund, named after the Malagasy word for children. And they built schools and provided health care.
2: That's awesome.
0: Yeah. It's just a fun little side fact. Yeah. And Krauss was the one who had helped find the Majungasaurus skull back in 1996. So Majungasaurus is one of the best-studied theropods from the Southern Hemisphere. It seems to be more closely related to abelosaurids from India than abelosaurids from South America or Africa. It was bipedal with a short snout and was about 20 to 23 feet or 6 to 7 meters long, though there are estimates, based on fragments, of some being as long as 26 feet or 8 meters it weighed about 2,400 pounds, 1,100 kilograms, though larger ones may have weighed up to 3,300 pounds, or about 1,500 kilograms. It had a long tail to help keep its balance, and it had short forelimbs with stocky limbs. Majungasaurus had four digits on each hand, though it was originally thought to only have two digits and... No claws. And this is because the first specimen studied had no pits and grooves where claws would normally be attached, and its finger bones were fused together, so that made it look like the hand was immobile. Hmm. A 2012 study of another specimen, though, found four digits that were very short and inflexible, and it had small claws on the second and third digits. Majungasaur's feet had three digits, it had a strong muscular neck and a wide, short skull, and it had a rounded dome-like horn on the roof of the skull, which was originally thought to be a pachycephalosaur dome. The skull had a rough texture, and it had nasal bones that were thick and fused together. The horn on top of the skull was probably covered with keratin. CT scans found that the nasal structure and horn on the top of the head had hollow sinus cavities, possibly to reduce weight. Majungasaurus probably competed with each other using the fused nasals and the horn on top of their heads, though how they did that is unclear. The horn's hollow cavity means it was not strong enough to use for fighting and was probably more for display. Majungasaurus had some variation in the horns, but no evidence of sexual dimorphism. As Majungasaurus grew and became older, its skull got taller and more robust and the skull bones were more fused and its eye sockets became smaller. This shows that juveniles and adults probably had different diets. Michael Demick's research shows that it was one of the slowest growing theropods based on lines of arrested growth on the bones. So it took Majungasaurus about 20 years to mature. A CT scan of a complete skull allowed scientists to reconstruct the brain and inner ear structure. The brain was small relative to its body size, but was similar to other non-celurisaurin theropods. One difference is compared to other theropods, Majungasaurus had a smaller floccus, which controls balance coordination. And because (laughs) of this, it probably didn't move its head quickly to look for and go after prey. Also, its inner ear shows that it held its head straight and horizontal to the ground, so it probably went after slower prey like large sauropods. Interesting. Yeah. It was an apex predator that possibly preyed on Rapetosaurus, which is a sauropod. It had more teeth in its upper and lower jaws compared to other abelosaurids, and it may have bitten its prey and held on to it until its prey stopped fighting, so it's this bite and hold approach. Hmm. Majungasaurus had a flexible lower jaw, which may have helped prevent fractures when holding onto its prey. The teeth curved on the front edge but were straighter in the back, possibly to hold teeth in place when biting instead of slicing prey. It probably specialized in hunting sauropods. Its stocky legs would have helped it with the bite-and-hold approach, and it didn't need to be as fast to go after these slower sauropods. Poor sauropods. Majungasaurus tooth marks have been found on Rapetosaurus, so it did eat these sauropods, though it's not clear if it killed them. Majungasaurus is also one of the few dinosaurs with direct evidence of cannibalism. In 2007, scientists published about some finds that showed Majungasaurus practiced cannibalism. Majungasaurus bones were found with tooth marks that looked the same as tooth marks found on sauropods in the area. Many of the bite marks on Majungasaurus were on limb bones that were only accessible during lethal combat. This is according to Scott Sampson in Dinosaur Odyssey. Majungasaurus is the only large known theropod in the area, so that probably means they fed on each other. It's not clear if Majungasaurus hunted each other or just scavenged carcasses, though Komodo dragons sometimes kill each other in feeding frenzies of carcasses. So maybe that's what happened. Scientists have been able to reconstruct Majungasaurus's respiratory system. It had air sacs like modern birds that allowed for a flow-through ventilation, which means the air flows through the lungs one way. Air inhaled is never mixed with air exhaled, and this is pretty efficient.
1: Yeah, we've talked about that before. Dinosaurs could really breathe awesomely.
0: (laughs) (laughs) They really knew how to breathe.
1: (laughs) They really did. I wish I could breathe like a dinosaur.
0: So, this shows the split between ceratosaurs, which led to Majungasaurus, and the tetanurans, which led to birds, happened early on with theropods. This common avian respiratory system would have evolved before the split, and it helps show that birds are dinosaurs. In 2007, a report described four Majungasaurus pathologies based on the remains of 21 individuals. There were no wounds found on the skull, but one had a broken and healed toe bone. Another had a bony growth on the underside of a back vertebra, probably from cartilage conversion during development. Another had abnormal growth on its tail vertebra, probably from ossification of a ligament. And another had abnormalities on five large tail vertebrae, Three were fused together at multiple points, making a solid bony mass. There was no sign of other vertebrae after the fifth one, so the tail was shorter than most. It was about 10 vertebrae short. This could be from severe trauma that resulted in losing the tip of the tail and then infection, or maybe the infection came first and then part of the tail fell off. It's the first example of tail truncation found in a non-avian theropod. Thanks. Painful, yeah. Yeah. Majungasaurus lived in a semi arid climate on a coastal floodplain. Sea levels were rising at the time, and Madagascar was an island even when Majungasaurus was around. It lived in an area that had wet and dry seasons, and each year animals that died from lack of water were then swept away by water during the wet season and buried, which led to lots of preserved fossils. Other animals that lived at the same time and place as Majungasaurus include fish, frogs, lizards, snakes, crocodilomorphs, and some mammals and birds, as well as the nodosaurid Masiacosaurus, two titanosaurs including Repetosaurus, and also possibly the dromaeosaurid Rahonavus. You can see Majungasaurus in the media. Actually, part of Indominus Rex's DNA in Jurassic World is Majungasaurus. And you can see Majungasaurus in the fifth episode of the series When Dinosaurs Ruled, hosted by Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> you can also see Majungasaurus in the first episode of Jurassic Fight Club, where they're talking about its cannibalism. Both shows, in that case, call it Majungatholus. And you can see Majungasaurus also in BBC's Planet Dinosaur. And in that show, it's called Majungasaurus.
1: And our fun fact of the day is that coprolite can actually serve to preserve fragile specimens kind of like amber (laughs) so coprolite again is fossilized poop we often think yeah And I think it's really cool because we think all the time about amber and how you can get like a mosquito trapped in it, like in Jurassic Park, or we found that dinosaur tail in amber and then it has the little tiny feathers and all that awesome kind of preservation. But if you think about it, fossilized poop is also a great place to look for tiny fossils because rather than just looking through a, you know, vast, open geological plane where things get moved all over the place, you've got all the stuff that an animal ate right there. And so you can be a little more delicate. You don't have time to go through acres and acres of Morrison formation looking for, you know, almost microscopic fossils. But if you find a little block of coprolite, you you can really go through that with a fine-toothed comb. And in these coprolites, sometimes they find things like really tiny teeth that indicate certain animals are there, where usually that's the only (laughs) remnant of that animal, but you'd never find it somewhere.
0: But you you find the teeth in poop.
1: Yeah, but you wouldn't <laughs> find them like out in the open cuz you know, how would you even notice them? You can also find really small organisms kind of like brine shrimp that are hard to find fossilized and you know, they're so tiny if you've ever seen brine shrimp that you wouldn't be able to look for them out in the open plains, but sometimes they get preserved in copper light so you can find them there. And you can even find other animal bones that are just too small to really find generally in geology. And even better than that, if something got eaten whole, you might be able to find a nearly complete specimen of some small animal and all its bones nicely packaged together in a coprolite. So (laughs) it's really cool. It kind of reminds me of dissecting an owl pellet in elementary school. I don't know if anybody else did that. I never did that. Oh, yeah? Mm. So like owls do this thing where they cough out things that they eat that they can't digest all the way. So, like, it's usually a lot of fur and bones and stuff. So we did one, and I think we had, like, part of a mouse in it, and you tried to, like, put the mouse back together with all the little bones that were in the owl pellet. It's kind of a similar sort of thing. It's up with fossils, so pretty neat. Yes. <laughs> Something I never thought about with copperlite before.
0: No, it makes sense.
1: Yeah. And as a credit, I got the inspiration for that from the Dinosaur Ecosystems course put on by the university of hong kong
0: cool and that wraps up this episode of i know dino thanks for listening and just to reiterate one last time if you want us to send you a sticker then sign up for our patreon between now and april 18th at patreon.com slash i know dino thanks again and until next time Thank you for listening to I Know Dino. If you have any questions or comments about dinosaurs, we'd like to hear from you at plesiosaur at iknowdino.com. And for more information on dinosaurs, go to iknowdino.com. Or follow us on Google, Facebook, Tumblr,
1: or Twitter at iknowdino.